0: Celebrating my daughter Katie's wedding. Katie is our middle child. She's our oldest daughter. It was basically a reception held at Colette's sister's garden. Katie had eloped back in October, but we had a very nice time throwing this big party to celebrate. And it was wonderful to be together again with our three kids. Two of them were spouses now. Andrew, the oldest, was married in 2018. And Amelia, our youngest, who lives in Portland, has no prospects that we know of. (laughs) These times, when the kids are all together, all of our family is back together, they don't happen very much anymore. You all know about that. Since Andrew left for college in 2018, it's been less than a dozen times. But the year before he left for college, we took a camping road trip together. We spent 38 days traveling 9,000 miles. We visited nine national parks. It was the trip of a lifetime, and it was the last time We all vacationed together. It was really the last time our family was really together for any length of time. I am so glad we made that trip. My kids, I don't know if they're glad about it or not, but I am glad. One of the places we stopped was Zion National Park. We had been told there was a world-class hike in Zion by the name of Angel's Landing. My kids are hikers, so we wanted to give it a try. And by the way, I have been negotiating with Linda back there to plan a trip for our church to Zion so that those that like hiking could enjoy doing that one together, or maybe one of the slot canyons there in Zion. They're just gorgeous. We'll see if that ever comes to pass. You, you stay on her case about it. Angel's Landing is a short hike, four miles out, four miles back. And the first three miles are almost disappointing. It's a paved trail, more like a stroll than a hike, although the views are spectacular. But then, at the three-and-a-half-mile marker, we came to a place where the pavement ran out, and there was a big sign, and on the sign were these words, Danger. Persons with physical disabilities or who have a fear of heights should not proceed beyond this point. People die falling from this trail every year. Now, there's a new sign now, but that was what the sign said when we were there in 08. Well, it's really all it took to whet my kid's appetite. Uh, Amy, by the way, was only 11 years old at that point. A lot of people had hiked up to that point. They were sitting around on rocks, taking pictures, eating lunches. Obviously not planning to go any farther. Andrew and Katie were having none of that. They headed for the trail, and Amy started to follow, but Colette said to her, Amy, you're going to wait here with Daddy and me, and we'll let the big kids go on together by themselves. Of course, she was not happy with that at all, so I said, look, I think it'll be okay. And besides, I'm going, and I'll watch her. I figured it couldn't be all that bad because if it was, OSHA or some federal regulatory agency would have shut that thing down a long time ago. There couldn't be any real danger. Well, if the sign had made no impression on me, at least the name of the trail should have Angels Landing. Where do angels come from? How do they get where they're going? They fly because they have wings. Falling from some sheer 1,000-foot cliff is no big deal for an angel. So for the next half mile, that's exactly what that trail was, a rocky climb. Not a walk, not a stroll. In some places, not more than a couple feet wide at the most, with absolutely sheer drop-offs on either side, 1,000 foot down. Iron chains had been anchored into the rock faces in many places to give the hikers something to hold on to. I, for one, was gripping that chain with vice-like intensity. Before moving one hand, I would make sure my other hand was holding fast. It was not technically difficult. It was just that one slip would have meant disaster. I kept saying to myself, under my breath, Do not slip here. Slipping will kill you. Do not lean out. Do not look down. And do not, do not, do not let go of the chain. We are surely almost at the end of this, and then we can turn around and go back, and it will all be over. This was not the way my two older kids were going about the hike. They were out front, moving fast and having a blast. To them, holding on to the chain would have been a mark of sheer cowardice. They were standing up, gawking around, leaning out, dangling a leg out over the edge to see their dad's heart go thump. And Amy was between them and me, and she was desperately trying to keep up with her older siblings. I kept saying, Amy, slow down. Be careful. Be deliberate. Keep at least three of your limbs in contact with the rocks at all times. Now, one thing you need to know about Amy. As she was growing up, There were many, many times when she fell going up the stairs in our house. Never fell down, but going up many times. I'd be sitting at my desk downstairs working, and she would run past, headed for the stairway, and miss one. And it was crash and burn with tears. And I kept having this vision of her in my mind, of her sprawled on the stairway, sobbing. And I kept thinking of the promise I had made to watch her, and suddenly there seemed to be a distinct possibility that I would have to return and report to the mother of that little girl that, well, she took one misstep into thin air and fell about 1,100 feet down the mountain. We will have to retrieve her on our way down. I was truly afraid that day, not only for myself, but for my fearless children. After we'd made it to the top and were on our way back down, we passed an older lady on her way up. She was gray and lean and tan and fit, every inch the outdoorsy type. She stopped to let us go by. My kids scrambled around her on the outside of the rocks, leaning out over the edge, hardly slowing down. I opted for the inside, my hands maintaining their death grip, On the chain. She looked at me knowingly and then spoke these words, and I have never forgotten them. Isn't it a shame that young people have no fear at all when they really should have? And the older we get, the more fear we have that we really shouldn't have. Psychologists tell us that fear is one of the primal and most deep-seated of human emotions. You remember the t-shirt? Don't believe it. It's all bluster because every single one of us has to deal with fear in one form or another. I'm currently reading a book about how nations and empires collapse on account of economic crises and financial mismanagement Mike McBride is reading that same book it scares the dickens out of me to read that we are in for some tough times and we are living right now in a time when fear is on the rise 85 out of a hundred adults in America 85 out of 100 believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. This is as of June 30 of this year, and people are scared. We're going the wrong way. Bad things are going to happen. The media helps this along, also stoking fear. And we learn to fear from each other, and even from our families, even at a young age. It's a rare mother who says to her child who goes out to play, have fun, honey, take risks, embrace danger, only look one way when you cross the street. No. Mothers and fathers say things like, be careful. It's a dangerous world out there. Hold fast to the iron chains when you're hiking. We all wrestle with fear And all, not all fear is bad. Let's just acknowledge that right from the get-go. There is a healthy fear. That kind of fear helps us survive. It teaches us to respect appropriate boundaries. Healthy fear alerts us to real dangers and keeps us from doing stupid things. But there is also unhealthy fear, the kind that can keep us from doing something that we really need to do and that keeps us from taking appropriate risks and growing and becoming the people we were meant to be. This is the kind of fear that we're thinking about this morning. And this is pretty real for me because, to be honest, there are a lot of places where fear affects my life and holds me back. You can maybe catch a little bit of that in the interview with, with Amanda th- this morning. I was, I was not happy about being recruited to do what she wanted me to do. I, my heart was... I can, I'll remember those moments with clarity for a long time. You know, memory is sharpest when there's a, an emotional attachment with it, you know? One of Colette's life goals, at least it was earlier in her life, is to plant a church for Americans who have never been part of a church before. She's always wanted to do that before she dies. And although we are getting older now, she's still attentive to whether God might or might not have that in mind for her. And if he does, then since I'm married to her, I will be in on it too. And you know what? It scares me. It does. Here's a little secret that some of you know. Even preparing a message to give each week causes anxiety for me. I say, and this is my little saying, Sabbaths come with terrifying regularity. (laughs) So it's an ongoing experience for me to know what Scripture teaches about fear and attempt to apply it to my life. And I suspect it's probably the same for most of you. The Bible actually has quite a lot to say about fear. In fact, the most frequent command in Scripture doesn't have anything to do with keeping the Sabbath or serving the poor or loving your neighbor. The most frequent command is do not fear. Some scholars say there are over 300 occurrences of it in one form or another. I counted at least 79 times where Jesus or God say it directly. And that's because over and over again in the Bible, it's fear that threatens uh, to keep people from trusting God and obeying him. Generally speaking, God invites people into adventure, into some step of faith, into some risk that they don't want to take. And when he does, it all comes down to this. Will you go with your fear or will you go with your faith? Shrink back or trust? God says to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. In other words, leave everything that you've ever known. Does that sound a little bit frightening, maybe? Go with your wife, Sarah, to a strange land where you will be strangers for the rest of your life. And as an old man, you will become the father of a son and of a nation. But you're going to have to leave everything familiar and comfortable. You'll have to trust me. Wow. Talk about planting a church. God says to Moses, Go, confront the most powerful man on earth. Tell him, let my people go. He's not going to like that. But I'm going to start a new community of people who will bring hope to the world and you will be their leader. (laughs) But you've got to trust me. God says to Daniel, I want you to defy the king. Pray to me. Even though there's a law against it. Even though you will be thrown to the lions. Trust me. One day Jesus says to a rich young ruler, I want you to liquidate all your financial investments. Empty your whole portfolio and give it all away to the poor. Then, come, be with me, and we'll do life together. It will be the adventure of a lifetime. But you've got to trust me. And a lot of times in the Bible, people do. They trust. And not one of them ever regretted it. Have you ever heard of somebody who at the end of their life said something like, Well, I trusted God, but I sure wished I hadn't. You know, I'm so sorry I did that. People don't say things like that. People come to the end of their life and they say things like, I didn't trust God much, but if only I had, how much better would have things turned out? Mm. Because sometimes people say no to God. The rich young ruler said no. What is it that keeps people from taking risks for God? Basically, I think it's fear. Sometimes it's just because they want their own way and they're selfish, but most of the time, they're scared. So what was he afraid of, the rich young ruler? Have you ever wondered whatever became of him? Did he become a, 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 a richer, older ruler? Did he ever look back and remember the day that rabbi from Nazareth challenged him to give it all away and bless the poor and become a follower? Did he ever think about how his life would have turned out if he had said, well... Okay. Did he wonder about how his self-absorbed, self-indulgent life might have become generous and meaningful? How his aging, lonely life would have become filled with love? I wonder how my life would have turned out way back when I was a young man if I would have said yes to that young rabbi and trusted him. Regret is a pretty high price for giving in to fear. I think about that a lot. But that's not how God wants us to live and come to the end of our life. And all the what-ifs we were afraid of have turned into what might have been's. If only we'd trusted. That's not his plan for us. And so he says over and over again, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Now, why do you think he says that? Is it because he wants us to live in denial and and think the danger is not real? Of course not. The reason he says not to fear is because he is with us. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in danger, Psalm 46 Do you remember the next line? Anybody? Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. In other words, even when the whole world is coming apart... We don't have to be afraid because God will be with us. He is an ever-present help in danger. This is a principle of life, that God is present with his people in times of danger, in times of, of difficulty. And if you can remember this, you have half the message of this morning in your mind. Half. Casey read Isaiah 43 to us a few moments ago. The context of Isaiah 43 is really quite amazing. God's people were going through some very difficult times in Isaiah's day. When he writes chapter 43, an invading army is at the gates. Most of the homes of the people will be burned down or destroyed. Most of the people themselves will be killed or carried off as slaves to a foreign land, never to return in their lifetimes. Those are circumstances that would, that would register pretty high on anybody's fear index, I think. Although most of them denied it, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments But you can imagine the newspaper headlines in Isaiah's day. Nebuchadnezzar advances with invincible Babylonian horde. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Those aren't God's headlines, though, to his people. God says, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. Now these are not only God's words to his ancient people, they are his words to men and women and boys and girls who choose to follow him today. They are words to us in this place at this time. Think about that. You are known by name to the God of the universe. You are his. And when you pass through the waters, what? I will be with you. In this passage, in case you read more of it than I've got on the screen here, but God talks about two particularly terrible kinds of death, drowning and burning. Most of the time when God says, fear not, in the Bible, it's not because the danger is going to disappear or diminish. It's because In the danger, through the danger, God has promised to go with his people. He has promised his presence and his power for the difficult task or the risk of faith his people are facing. The examples of this are almost too numerous to list, but you can think of a few. To Abraham, who worries about battles to come because he has just killed five warlords in the land where he is living, God says, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I'm right here with you, surrounding you, a shield. Abram chooses trust and becomes father of God's nation. To old Jacob, who at the end of his life was faced with the task of moving his entire household to a nation that had been their age-old national enemy, God says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there, and I will go down to Egypt with you. Jacob chooses to trust, and Israel is born A much-loved and brilliant founding leader dies with his work unfinished, and a new man is called to complete his formidable task. His name is Joshua. Imagine how Joshua must have felt. God says to him, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Why not? For the Lord will go with you wherever you go. Three times God said that to Joshua in the first chapter alone. Do you think that he might have been a little scared? But Joshua trusted, and Israel prevailed. To King Jehoshaphat, outnumbered by a vast marauding army, God says, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat trusted, and the enemy was routed. Over and over again, God says, don't be afraid because I'm going to be with you in the place where I'm calling you to go. To a young girl faced with a life of disgrace and maybe even a violent death by stoning, God says, don't be afraid, Mary. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's pretty close. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary chooses trust in the face of fear, and Jesus is born. To his followers afraid of drowning, Jesus said, Don't be afraid. To fathers of little girls who were dying, Jesus said, Don't be afraid. To people worried about the troubles and the cares that life brings, Jesus says, Don't be afraid, little flock. Your Father is pleased. He's pleased to give you the kingdom. He still says that to us. Don't fear. In John 14, Jesus says to his followers, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why not? Well, verse 25, God is coming to be with his followers, to live with them. Verse 26, he promises to give them the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, forever. Let me tell you a parable about how this works. Years ago, probably 15 or so, there was a, a movie called The Bear. Does anybody remember seeing The Bear? Yeah, It was a kind of documentary film, but it had no dialogue whatsoever. There was no talking in the whole film. It was the story of this little bear cub whose mother dies in an accident very early on in the movie, so it's quite apparent this little cub is never going to make it on its own. Then, much to our surprise and to the little bear's surprise, this great big daddy grizzly bear comes along and kind of adopts the little cub. Now, of course, in real life, the grizz would eat the cub. But in this story, he kind of adopts him, and they do life together. He teaches the little cub how to live, how to grub for bugs and fish in the stream and scratch his back against the trees when he's itchy. The little bear cub does everything he sees the big grizz doing. Then one day, they're separated from each other. The little cub is on his own. Now, in the meantime, a mountain lion has been tracking them because he wants bear steak for dinner, and he's been waiting for this moment. The camera shows the little cub and the mountain lion creeping closer, and they meet at a stream in the forest. The mountain lion is ready to pounce, and you can hardly watch because you just know what's going to happen, and it's not going to be pretty. At the crisis moment, the little bear does just what he sees his daddy do in a situation like that. He stands up on his little hind paws. He gets his front paws up, and he tries to roar, but the only thing that comes out is a little squeak. The camera cuts back to the mountain lion, but instead of springing, it flattens its ears and begins backing away. There is a look of terror in its eyes, and it starts to run. The camera cuts back to the little cub just standing up there with his paws up in the air, kind of surprised he's been so effective. The camera pans back, and we see what the little bear doesn't see. Just a dozen yards behind him, that great big daddy Grizz is standing up on his hind legs with his big claws up, and he roars. And when he does, everybody knows, you stay away from that little cub. And then we understand what the little cub didn't know. He was never alone. Even when he couldn't see him or smell him, his daddy was close by. He was never out of the presence of the Father. And that's what God wants us to know. We are never out of the presence of the Father. There's nothing that can separate us from him. Not trouble. Paul says, not danger, not hardship, not hunger, nothing in life. The economy might collapse. The end of America as we know it might be upon us. Some medical situation might profoundly alter the course of the rest of my life. But none of that can ever separate us from him. Now, you might say, well, that's really not a good parable because God doesn't always protect us from the bad things like the grizz did for the cub. Of course he doesn't. And the classic illustration for that is Daniel, the third chapter, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego publicly defy the king's order to worship the golden image. They are threatened with death by burning in a hot, fiery furnace if they will not comply. I imagine there was probably some fear in their stout hearts that day. Wouldn't you think? There would have been in mine. The three answer. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Is God able? Of course he is able. He can save his people from any threat. And sometimes he does. But, they continued, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not worship the golden image you have set up. And that day, God did not save his people from being thrown into the fire. He did not. But, He was with them in the fire. He was present. Paul says not even death can separate God's presence from his people. Neither death nor life, he says in Romans 8. And that pretty well covers the whole gamut of human experience. Neither death nor life. And when we are afraid, we need to know that. We need to remember God is present but there's more. As reassuring as it is to know that God is close, it's not enough. There's something else that I have to do because fear is designed to produce action. Psychologists say fear is is a kind of self-correcting response. It's there to alert us to danger, and it motivates us to take action so that we won't get hurt or killed. But in a strange sort of way, what it sometimes does is immobilize us. It paralyzes us, and this can become a chronic response. What then? Well, one author that I read this week says this, moving from fear-based living to faith-based living involves taking a step of action towards facing what I fear. It requires trusting God even if I feel fear. It means approaching what I fear, taking a wise, God-honoring risk. When we're afraid, we have two basic options. We can move toward what we are afraid of, or we can move away from it. We can avoid it. Now remember, we're talking about unhealthy fear here, okay? I have a fear of hungry bears. We had, I, I watch a YouTube channel called scary bear attacks it is it has increased this healthy fear of hungry bears all right and we had three bears in our in our backyard just a couple of weeks back destroying our bird feeders trying to get the suet you know I told my kids about the visit of the three bears and Amy the youngest one that falls up the stairs she said to me just yesterday she says dad when they come back get a picture for me And I said, I am sorry, but if they come back, I am not going outside to take their pictures. It would probably be the last picture I ever took. The healthy fear response in the face of a hungry bear is to avoid it, move away. The trouble is, sometimes I use the avoidance response with unhealthy fear. In avoidance, I seek to escape anxiety and worry by evading a problem rather than facing it. Avoidance was the very first uh, response to human fear. Uh, The first time fear is mentioned in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3. Adam has done what God has forbidden him to do. He has eaten the tree, uh, which is out of bounds, and now God comes, as he always had come at the end of the day, to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, only Adam and Eve weren't there. God calls for them. You remember what Adam said? I was afraid, so I hid. Yeah. Avoidance response. It was not confession. It was not repentance. It was hiding. Hiding from what we're afraid of is what we all tend to do, and it has many different forms. I'm going to name a couple of ways we do this, and here's what we'll do. If you recognize what I'm talking about as something that you do, then when I ask you, then just raise your hand with me today, all right? It'll be kind of like a mass confession right here in church. And confession is actually a good thing to do when you come to public worship. It is. We should confess. So just raise your hands with courage. If any of this sounds like it might be you. The first one is procrastination, and here's how it works. There's a problem. There's a phone call I need to make, but it's liable to be unpleasant, and I don't want to experience the unpleasantness, so I put it off. And the longer, <laughs> the longer I put it off, the more unpleasant it becomes. So I put it off longer. I'm hoping the other person will move away or die or something. You know, I won't have to make that call. But strange thing. Life hardly ever works that way. I hide from what I'm afraid of by putting it off. How many of you do that? Yeah, that's what I figured. Five days before her reception, my daughter asked me to have the welcome to kind of kick everything off. And I told her, fine, I can do that. But I was also going to offer an invocation too, and she said, and this is almost a direct quote, Well, just remember, Dad, nobody who will be there except for you and Mom and Baker's parents care anything about God. They really don't like Christianity. Oh, that's a happy thought. I'm going to have a welcome and a prayer for a bunch of people who are going to resent me from praying. And I'm the one paying for all of it. (laughs) Now I'm afraid to write the invocation. Okay? Guess what I did? I put it off (laughs) till late Friday night. There was no more time. I finally had to do it. The second way we hide is by using that famous river in Egypt, denial. I just pretend like it doesn't bother me. Men are particularly good at this one. They wear their no fear t-shirts and announce it to the world. There was a fascinating bit of research that was done. that studied people who were afraid they had cancer symptoms. Here's what they found. They found that people who were afraid they had cancer symptoms were less likely to go to a doctor than those who had no symptoms at all. Why? They were afraid they might really be sick. Yeah. Denial. Anybody there? Mm. Some of us avoid our fears by distancing ourselves. We change the subject. We watch TV. We play computer games. We stay real busy to avoid focusing on what we need to be thinking about. And another way that we we avoid fear is by indecision. I I won't decide to commit to a relationship because what if it's the wrong person? I won't make a decision because what if it's the wrong decision? How many of you are ever indecisive because you're afraid you might get it wrong? Anybody? How many of you are not sure? (laughs) How many of you need more time? (laughs) Here's the deal. Fear avoidance is tempting to me because it provides short-term relief. For a little while, I don't have to face what scares me. But there is a downside. Short-term relief leads to long-term regret. Long-term regret. So, when God says, don't be afraid, what he's really saying is, I want you to obey me in spite of your feeling of fear. And that's called courage. If you trust me, if you obey me, God says, you will experience my power at work. But you can't wait for the fear to go away. You must act in faith. And the illustration for this one is the story of Elijah. You remember Elijah. Elijah was a man of courage. He faced down 850 prophets of Baal in a fire from heaven contest on top of Mount Carmel. And then he executed all of them by himself. That's a lot of stabbing with the sword, 850. Not a single one of them escaped. The only problem was those pagan prophets had a powerful patron. Do you remember who it was? It was Jezebel, the wicked queen, and she marked Elijah for certain assassination. This was a serious problem for Elijah, and he was scared. He had to decide, do I approach my fear or do I avoid my fear? And you remember what he did, right? He ran. He chose avoidance. He ran for his life. And when he got tired of running, he sat down under a tree. And do you remember what he did then? He prayed to die. He did. It was kind of a convoluted response, I think. He's afraid to be killed, so he runs for his life and then he prays to die. That's what kind of thing you do when you live in fear. There under the tree, God came to him and fed him and got him all rested up. And after he did, he took Elijah up on a mountain. And uh, Elijah listened for the voice of God, remember? And at the end of that, you can find that God said something very interesting to him. You You can find it in 1 Kings 19 and verse 15. God says, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. God didn't say, you know, Elijah, you're right. That Jezebel, oh, she is one wicked gal. She is after your hide and you can't handle it. So, you just stay up here on this mountain, safe and sound. I'll go down and take care of her. I'll get rid of everything that's causing you fear. And when it's good and safe and all the problems are solved, you can come down. God didn't change his situation at all. Jezebel was still evil. She was still after Elijah. He was still in big trouble. But God said, go back the way you have come. In other words, even though you have fear, trust me, do what I'm asking you to do. And Elijah went back down that mountain, a changed man, and he confronted Ahab. He didn't shrink or run away the second time. He said some very courageous things to that king. He told Ahab, you are on a direct path to destruction, a collision course with the God of heaven. And your wife Jezebel, well, the dogs are going to eat her and lick up her blood That's a word picture. And his courage inspired a whole nation to repentance. Even King Ahab repented. What if Elijah had said, don't think I'm going until it gets a little safer down there. And of course, the point is that his story is our story. We all come to God with fear, every one of us, and we have to choose to respond in faith to whatever God asks us to do. Whatever it is, faithfulness with our money, integrity in our relationships, confession of our sin, willingness to take on some risk, some some task, or serve in some ministry that he's calling me to serve, Whatever we're afraid of, God says, trust me. And when we do, we will taste his power at work in our life. And we will come to the end of our days and there will be no regrets. That's no fear. Not even a little bit. So let's stand together as we sing and finish our worship this morning.